going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you so much, Capital. It is the Going Deep podcast, and I am Donovan Bennett, and I'm excited for this Friday edition of the show. Congratulations. You made it through the week. If you are in Canada, it was a very, very cold week, but we're going to keep it cold. We're going to stay on the ice because it is All-Star Weekend in sports, but specifically in the NHL. We're going to have an encompassing NHL conversation, and a bit later, a conversation about All-Star Weekends. But first, much more serious conversation in tone with someone who's a serious journalist on all things National Hockey League. That would be Ian Kennedy, a writer for the Hockey News, gives great analysis for Yahoo Sports on all things NHL, and is the author of On Account of Darkness. And is a great account to follow on Twitter. And he's been so outspoken and really so illuminating on so many issues that the hockey world has faced of late. Their pledge for diversity and lack thereof, fumbling of multiple pride nights, and reconciling with Bobby Hall's accomplishments and his misgivings. Let's unpack all of those things for the next little while as we listen to and learn from Ian Kennedy. Let's go deep. So Ian, there's so much that I want to tackle with you that you have tackled well in your work and with your social presence uh, that maybe we should go in somewhat uh, some sort of order and go back to the dueling Pride Night fiascos that we've had in the NHL, whether it was Provorov himself and the Flyers somewhat, you know, protecting him, and then obviously the Rangers abandoning some of their Pride Night obligations that they expressed publicly beforehand. What have you made of the fact that what should be pretty somewhat simple at this point has become controversial? I think it's a, you know, a symptom of something a lot larger than the game of hockey. It's really this ongoing attack against the LGBTQ plus community that we're witnessing across North America. And, uh, you know, unfortunately it gets politicized, but in reality, we're just talking about the existence of people, of human beings. And the pride Jersey itself is just a symbol that fans are welcome at games. Uh, Obviously we've seen reports recently that, Viewership is down in in various markets across the National Hockey League. And no doubt there are some issues like this that have to be contributing that we want people to feel welcome and safe watching hockey. But this has become uh, really combative or almost contrary to the NHL's own equity, diversity and inclusion efforts, which they've talked quite a bit about recently. And, uh, It's hard to reconcile that in my mind right now that they are fully committed to doing that if they can't even 
you know, get their organizations to participate in something that should be so simple and should be uh, really at this point in time in history, this is the bare minimum. This is the performative action. It's not even the real work that's going to make substantive change. Well, you talk about those audience numbers, and for those who don't know, audience numbers in the United States are down, depending on you know when and the broadcaster, but around 20%, which is not a small number. We saw the audience speak out in 2020 during the bubble when they felt like the NHL's answer at the time and not openly saying Black Lives Matter was something they were willing to do. We saw fans all over social media kneeling with uh, hockey sweaters on. Now we have, years later, this Pride Night scenario, and I wondered, is one related to the other? Do we have the Rangers situation without Provorov, or are they independently unique and different? No, I don't think they're independent uh, or unique in any way. I think this all stems back to... Uh, you know, a, a lack of formal commitment to actually doing the work. It's fine to put out statements. It's fine to change profile pictures, to have rainbows or to, to say Black Lives Matter. But unless the league as a whole, including the players, including the ownership, including uh, the managers involved, are willing to educate, to, uh, you know, fund grassroots programs, all of the other stuff is really quite meaningless. And, uh, you know, after the Provorov situation where we saw the NHL put out a statement saying that who they recognize, who teams recognize in terms of hockey is for everyone and how they do that and when they do that is up to the individual clubs. And then further that the participation in club directives is up to the players well, I think we really opened the door for something like the New York Rangers completely stepping away. Um, of course, there's been quite a bit of talk that this relates to uh, some of the anti-LGBTQ plus uh, rhetoric and, and politicizing that's happening in Russia, and that it's, it's largely to do with uh, some actual fear of those players, perhaps. But I think it's a, a, a broader picture. This is a cultural issue. Um, that stems anywhere back to Black Lives Matter to uh, these these anti-LGBTQ plus protests that we're seeing, because that's what it is. You know, we, we talk a lot about how uh, it's not enough to be just not racist. We need to be actively anti-racist. And this stems to the same thing. If we're not actually putting our, our best foot forward and doing the action, then we're opening the door for a lot more to happen here. Yeah, it's come to the point where these are political issues much was made of the fact that the nhl wanted to have a job fair in florida targeting you know diverse candidates and ron DeSantis made that a political issue and some people feel like sports should be apolitical i don't know if anything truly can be uh apolitical I talked earlier on this show about the fact that you know exactly where the NFL owners generally are politically. They're on one side of the spectrum. And you, for the most part, know where the NBA owners are. They're on the other end of the spectrum. Is hockey caught trying to please everybody and thus they're, they're pleasing nobody? I think in a way that's probably there's some truth to that. You know, uh, whether it's corporate sponsorship, whether it's uh, trying to 
challenge those larger market professional sports in North America for viewership. Uh, there's probably a portion of that where hockey has uh, profited from and targeted crowds that might be politically uh, more in one direction, that, uh, you know, very homogenous base of fans where we didn't traditionally see as many women or as many people of color or as many LGBTQ plus uh, people involved or various uh, religious groups involved in sport and, and embracing the game of hockey. And that stems back to the fact that hockey has historically uh, ostracized those groups and uh, really focused on being a game for, for white men. Um, but, you know, I hope that changes I'm not so confident. I do think there's uh, there's negative changes coming in. Uh, we've got uh, a new Nashville Predators owner that's uh, coming to take over the team now that has spent his entire political career in the United States uh, lobbying against LGBTQ plus rights, uh, lobbying against women's rights. And uh, so we know where the NBA stands. We know where the NFL ownership stands. Uh, we kind of know where NHL ownership stands because otherwise I think we'd have a board of directors meeting where they would say this is what we are doing as a league Um, we stand for not just a broad statement of hockey is for everyone but we stand for anti-racism we stand for uh, supporting human rights for LGBTQ plus people and the inclusion of transgender and non-binary people and we don't see any bold statement like that except for one from the NHL on social media which uh, was used as a talking point by people like Ron DeSantis to uh, to cancel the, uh, the NHL's efforts to diversify their workforce. A big part of finding a new path forward is truly reconciling with the past. And there's been a lot of people in the game in the past who, quite frankly, were not on the right side of many of these issues. Case in point, Bobby Hall who recently passes, and it is very like hockey culture to protect, to not necessarily call out, to think of the collective and and be less than a whistleblower. But there's also has to be a way to put his actual sporting context into the conversation. How, in your estimation, do we balance being honest on who he was as a person with presenting what he did to become someone we know, and that's playing the game at a high level. It's a very complex situation here. And, you know, he was a great hockey player, period. There's no discussion about that. Um, But a legacy is a legacy. And we are talking about people playing a game. Um, One of the most astute kind of reads on this that I I saw was uh, someone said, will we remember Graham James for being a coach that was actually able to put up winning seasons? Or will we remember Graham James for uh, abusing numerous people? And that's his legacy. And unfortunately in hockey, we really do put this team first mentality out there where we don't speak against our team. We don't act against our team. We don't question our team. And that is all in the name of winning. If someone on the ice can help a a team or an organization 
make money or win. Um, we're not willing to really question too much else with that. We've seen it recently with the signings of people like Mitchell Miller, where uh, really should never have happened. And uh, it, ta- it took a lot of backpedaling afterwards. And, and with the legacy of Bobby Hall, uh, it's very complex. You know, I, I recognize that his family is, is likely grieving at this point and coming to their own, um, you know, understanding of his life. But the truth of the matter is that he was problematic. He uh, was violent against women. He was known for domestic abuse. Um, there's reports of him making anti-black racist statements and anti-Semitic statements, um, you know, basically saying that he agreed with a lot of what Hitler did. And, and those types of things, in my opinion, are the legacy. It, it just so happens that this person also was very good at a game. But as human beings, uh, I think it's really troublesome if we're willing to overlook all of the harm that he caused uh, in the name of, of a sport, no matter how much we love the sport, because I love the sport more than, you know, probably the average person. And uh, uh, at the same time, I can't imagine fully celebrating someone for being very good at hockey when I know that celebration is likely very painful for his victims and those that he hurt. Yeah, I, I do. I do think of when someone passes, certainly the family, because I try to put myself in their shoes. And I did see his granddaughter tweet saying, like, how can people say this so quickly after he passed? I hope they can sleep well at night. My answer to that was, like, is it better to bring this stuff up later? I'm not sure what the appropriate time is. I just hate that, you know, while I'm sure she was grieving, just gave a bunch of people on Twitter, you know, an opportunity to then go at her, which I'm sure wasn't helpful, but there is no great time to have uncomfortable conversations. One conversation that has long been had and that is overdue um, is the conversation about the Chatham All-Stars. And you have written about them extensively. You've campaigned for them to be in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. I was lucky enough to be part of the voting committee for the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame and was one of the people wasn't just me but one of the people campaigning for them to get in the chatham all-stars are in a video game celebrating what they've done they're not even in the canadian uh baseball sports hall of fame like how how in a word how is that possible i am as baffled as anybody about this i've been i mean i wrote a book about this team i've i've written articles uh about Wilfred Boomer Harding's hockey uh, exploits. I've written about pretty much every player on the team, um, and I, I'm invested with this. I know the family members personally. Um, their ability to compete at a high level, to excel athletically, uh, and to leave a long-lasting legacy in Canada is almost unchallengeable. The difference that the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame is stating is that they don't feel because the All-Stars won a Ontario B championship that they are as worthy as a team that may have won uh, a national title or an Ontario A championship. But that's ignoring systemic racism. That's ignoring the fact that these players were segregated, that they 
couldn't play on baseball fields in their own town, that when they showed up other places, people spit on them and hurled racist slurs. And when they did win, they often had to fight their way out of town and that umpires, um, you know, falsely called fake rules against them or, or, you know, found ways to challenge their abilities. And this team is so inspiring. And of course, you know, the legacy is not just of what they were able to accomplish. Then we see it with Fergie Jenkins, who was the first ever Canadian inducted into the baseball hall of fame, um, that his father, Ferguson Jenkins Sr., played with the All-Stars. Uh, you know, we've got Wilfred Boomer Harding that years later breaks the color barrier in the International Hockey League. Is the first black man to skate at, at uh, Olympia Stadium, home of the Red Wings at that time. We've got Earl Flat Chase, who is the first black man to play for the London Majors in the IBL, and that's just a famed, famed organization again. And these, these men did it at a time in 1934 when they couldn't walk into a restaurant or stay at a hotel when they had to travel. Um, So it's incomprehensible to me. They're in the Canadian sports hall of fame. They've received the order of Canada. They have a baseball game named after them. There's a big campaign right now to get them on a Canadian postage stamp. Yet the Canadian baseball hall of fame seems to want to whitewash this history uh, and create this revisionist uh, kind of, messaging that they are unworthy uh last year they only inducted one person a white man uh, and left the all-stars out so it's not even they're saying they're you know that they there's other people that are better than them it's them saying that the chatham colored all-stars don't belong in the canadian baseball hall of fame and i i believe that the vast majority of sports fans media and just citizens in canada would strongly strongly disagree with that and uh uh, you know, we can see that with the admonishment of uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame right now. Well, no disrespect to anyone who's in it. And certainly it is a lovely drive to St. Mary's if you want to check it out. But the entire Hall of Fame is illegitimate if they're not in it. Like, it, it's, it's that simple. It's not a true, it's not a true archival history of baseball in this country if they're not a part of it. You can't tell the history of baseball in this country without them. And so hopefully at some point um, the pressure that you have continued to put on um, will will get them in uh, because their exploits alone uh, deserve for them to be there. And to your point, their legacy is not just limited to baseball. You see someone like Wilfred Boomer Harding paving the way and now I believe there is no Mike Greer for the San Jose Sharks as a player or a GM without men like Wilfred Boomer Harding. Given you know your reporting of the game, there's a wave of black prospects expanding that legacy. Who are some of you know the names and faces within the game that you know you're really excited to see that the people should uh, be looking forward to seeing uh, as we celebrate Black History Month? Uh, There's so many, which is such just an exciting thing. You know, I write a lot about women's hockey too, so I don't want to leave out uh, Layla Edwards, who was the the, the MVP of the Under-18 World Championships last year for uh, Team USA, and uh, Jada Ginla, who is obviously Jerome's daughter, who uh, won gold, and, and her brother Tidge, who's playing in the Western Hockey League right now, who uh, is draft eligible next year. But uh, in my mind, uh, two of the most exciting um, 
Bill Zonin, who's playing in uh, Rune Naranda right now in the QMJHL. He's six foot five. He's he's got great hands. He can score. He uh, learns the game so quickly. You can just see the changes in his game from the beginning of this year to to where he is right now. Uh, and probably the top uh, young prospect that is black in hockey right now on the men's side is Malcolm Spence. Uh, he plays for the Erie Otters in the Ontario Hockey League. Just unstoppable speed and a motor that doesn't quit. He is in the play at all times uh, and really an electrifying player. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, we don't see him as a first-round draft pick in 2025, uh, which is when he's he's actually eligible. So he's he's in the OHL right now, scoring almost a point a game, and uh, you know we're still two years away from his draft here. So a definite name to watch. But there's just such, uh, you know, the, the game is changing, and it's really great to see these uh, young stars of the game that break away from the traditional uh, vision of what hockey looked like historically. And we really, you know, there's always been these great black athletes, the Boomer Hardings and the Herb Carnegies, but to see that the barriers are, are, I do believe there's change happening in hockey, are starting to change, and the representation is coming back for people like Mike Greer and and these young stars of the game, Quinton Byfields and people like that, and it's just, I think it's so inspiring, and not only that, but all of these young people that I've just mentioned are fantastic advocates and voices for change and will make noticeable change in the sport of hockey uh, as their platforms increase. Same, same can be said of you, uh, my friend. Uh, thank you for taking the time, both keeping people honest in terms of where they should be on these issues, but also celebrating the people who are doing great things within the game. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. There's so much space for this to make uh, good change and to celebrate and to talk about the hard issues, and I appreciate you doing that as well. Thanks so much to Ian Kennedy once again. And if you are looking for some good reading, pick up the latest issue of the Hockey News. He's got a feature on PWHPA star Amanda Kessel and her role with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's also done, as you heard, extensive reporting on the future generations of black hockey players and how they're paving the way for others, that's on NHL.com, and you can give him a follow. At Ian Kennedy, CK is the handle on Twitter. Is a must-follow on all things hockey. The Hockey Conversation continues after the break. Stay with us. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had that show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grandma and Granddad. It is the Going Deep podcast. And our next guest is so nice, we've invited him back twice. In the span of just over a week, Steve Buckley helped us put Tom Brady's career in context. But it's actually his career that I want to know more about. His career as a journalist, specifically one who's covered hockey in the past, who is openly and proudly gay. What has he made of the Pride Night fiasco, both in Philadelphia and in New York with the Rangers? 
I pledge to listen and learn, so let's do that with Steve Buckley. So, Steve, I know how I certainly felt when I saw the Provorov situation play out and then when I saw the New York Rangers' lack of pride around their pride night. When those two situations occurred, how did they make you feel as a openly gay man covering sports? And did you feel differently about the two? It, it, I mean, it's hard for me not to be affected by it because, uh, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't pose as a gay activist. I, I'm, I'm a sports columnist with the athletic and before that the Boston Herald and, you know, for many years, and I, I try to, no pun intended, skate my wing and, and write about sports. And when I write about gay issues, it's because those gay issues demand some kind of attention. LGBT uh, issues demand some kind of attention. This was one of those cases. Um, I, I don't fully know the machinations that, that took place in the background, other than that there was an announcement of sorts saying that the Rangers players would do their um, their warm-ups in pride shirts and that the, the tape would be affixed to their sticks, the, uh, the rainbow tape, and then that disappeared. So, and as I think I wrote in the column, um, uh, that I think my exact words were, it's a bang down gavels of shame than it's simplistic and naive because there, there is so many tentacles to an issue like this uh, that it, it, it's better off being discussed than yelled, if that makes any sense. It does. And it's funny for me when it's issues around race, often you hear when you cover them, oh, you're so desirous to talk about this. And it's like, actually, I'm desirous to talk about anything else. This is not why I got into uh, covering sports. I imagine for you, that's the same. But But when you do talk about them, is this a club-level issue? Is this a league issue? Is this an issue with the culture of the sport? Where do you find the root symptom that has us continuing to talk about this in relation to the game of hockey? I have a hard time thinking it's the culture of the sport because I've been around hockey for a long time, and uh, I've never really been a beat. I covered minor league hockey as a beat writer, but actually broke into the business in 1979, uh, 78, as a UPI stringer covering Whalers games in the last season of the WHA. I covered Gordie Howe, I covered Johnny McKenzie, and I covered the the great, respectable uh, Davey Keon from Toronto when he was playing for the Whale. And I've always found hockey – to be a very welcome environment. Now we've we've certainly seen issues of race, we've seen issues of homophobia, um, but I, I refuse to condemn a hockey culture. Uh, as always, I think it's individuals. I think it's somebody saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, I have a a um, more optimistic look at hockey and the other sports, and maybe some other people do. But when things like this happen, as I wrote in the column in the Athletic. It makes it tougher. It, and there's no denying this. You can't tell me otherwise. It makes it tougher for younger players at the amateur level, the high school level, college level, even in the minor leagues. And we have an openly gay player, Luke Prokop, uh, in the minors. It makes it tougher for them if these players are closeted uh, to come out because they read this and that has to put a chill in them. And that's, that's what I'm focusing on. So if... The league office reached out and said, 
give us some counsel. What would you say to them in terms of some things they could put in place so that they're living up to the mantra that hockey is for everyone? I, I would tell them when I tell everybody, try to imagine if you have a son or daughter who is dealing with the, the looming specter of, of, of coming out and, and how to handle that and what you would do and what protective measures you would put in place and what support you would offer if it were your kid. And Brian Burke, who used to run the Maple Leafs, uh, went through that very situation with his son who came out uh, during Christmas. And I've written often about it. And um, his son was, the, I think, the team manager of the Ohio, uh, Miami of Ohio hockey team. And <clears throat> the poor kid died in a car crash um, during that winter. And we'll never know <clears throat> what difference he could have made because he wanted to work in, co- in hockey as an old person. But while we'll never know what he could have done, what Brendan could have done, we do know what his family has done. And, and I, I remember how pleased I was when I saw Brian Burke um, sitting in the back of a car waving at people at the Toronto Pride Parade and that his family has stepped up so that their son's message won't be forgotten. Uh, that's an example of what you would do if it were your own kid. And I think if we look at it through that lens, it's possible to see it differently. Where do you think we go with Pride Nights? Uh, oddly, I feel like there's been a referendum on two things with this conversation, religion somehow and Pride Nights. I feel like we've got to a point where clubs are just trying to get a participation ribbon and feel like they don't want to be left out. So they're doing them and they've become somewhat performative, but Quite frankly, it doesn't matter what I feel because I'm not 2SLGBTQ+. Where do you think we go around uh, the celebration of being proud in arena with uh, some clubs being afraid uh, to ostracize some players? I I would differ with you on the notion of participation ribbons. Uh, That's probably true with some teams. Uh, but I've also, and again, if I sound provincial, I apologize, but I, I live in Boston. And and I remember how supportive all four teams were with me when I came out in 2011. Robbie Crapp, the owner of the Patriots, called me. Uh, Wick Grousebeck, the owner of the Celtics, called me. Um, the Bruins were great. And Bobby Orr called me. And, uh, and imagine that. You're a kid growing up in Boston, and Bobby Orr reaches out and gives you a thumbs up. And um, so, yeah, the Patriots, you know, Red Sox manager, Terry Francona, Kevin Euclid, Dusty Pedroia, uh, David Ortiz. So I don't look at those episodes back then as I, I wasn't I wasn't handing out participation ribbons. OK, here's one for you, Mr. Grossbeck. You <laughs> called me. Here's one for you, Mr. Kraft and all that. Um, I, I think that they were doing what they, you know, and another one is Steve Pagliuca from the Celtics. Um, so. You look at this, I look at this through what I've experienced, and and I think these teams are trying to do the right thing. I don't think it's marketing, although marketing always plays in it. We do live in a capitalist society. So, sure, they're going to market these things. Hey, gay folks, come on out to our game. Nothing wrong with that. They were in the business of making money, and their product is generally good. Um, Whether you're gay or straight up in Toronto, who doesn't want to go to a Leafs game? I mean, boy. And... 
so that they're doing that isn't isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's proactive. Uh, I guess there just has to be more communication from top to bottom within those organizations. Thank you so much to Steve at Buck in Boston. Once again, is how you follow him and his work. Steve has been covering sports for so long that he remembers, I'm sure, show the days when all-star games matter, specifically in the NHL when we're out here cheering for the Wales division and the sweaters were black and orange and white and were fire. Uh, Next time we talk to Adam Aziz, maybe we'll get him to rank the greatest all-star jerseys of all time. But maybe it's just me. And be sure to watch the NHL all-star festivities on Sportsnet this weekend. I do not care at all at this moment about all-star games. And I used to, as a kid, love them. Now we have a player who is playing for one division, which he's no longer actually in. I was all in when it was a conversation about North American stars versus stars from all over the world. In basketball, we're going to have a draft of who's playing on what team, which is kind of cool only to see who gets picked last, but I don't actually care to watch the game. The Pro Bowl, which has literally been flag football for a while, is now literally flag football. We're at a point where Josh Allen is playing in a golf pro-am and skipping the Pro Bowl. Huntley, a backup QB, and not a great one at that for the Baltimore Ravens, is somehow a pro bowler. I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I'm at the point where all all all-star games have somewhat jumped the shark. Even in baseball, the sport that you love, that lends itself to being a competitive all-star game, and it's built into the branding. Now it counts. Even that game is is tough to watch. Miking the players was cool, but the actual game is like, meh, I hope my starter doesn't throw more than one inning. That's essentially where I'm at with all with the baseball all-star game. But am I just a old, crusty man? How many people actually care about the all-star game? I would, I would argue very few uh, in, in virtually any sport. And like you said, I, I, baseball is near and dear to my heart, but I think the, the only thing to come out of last year's all-star game that I in any way, shape, or form enjoyed was Alec Manoa talking about like punchies. I don't know if you remember that when he was and, and he was he was really seeming to really enjoy himself on the mound and kind of talking both to the, the broadcast and talking to the players. Here we go, there's one. What do you think Kirk calls here? I think he calls a front hip sinker. Let's see how close I am. All right, I was wrong. Oh, there it is, second option. There we go, there's two. He caught it. Pretty, pretty good. Two up, two down, and a couple Ks. It was more like front shoulder, not front hip. Right down the middle, but we'll take it. Three punches. Let's go. Alec, congratulations. Thank you for doing this. You're the best, man. That's a hell of a bullpen right there. It was a lot of fun. It was just a, it was that was probably the best part of the All Star Game. But uh, you're right. <laughs> you don't want him to throw too many innings. You don't really want anyone to. Honestly, the the thing about the baseball All Star Game, 
that I hope for the most, at least when it comes to any Toronto Blue Jays, is what can they steal from other players in terms of knowledge, right? You always hear that that famous story about, I guess it was, I guess it was Doc. I think it was Roy Halladay learned like the grip from his famous, I think it was his cutter or whatever it was from Mariano Rivera, who like taught him how to do it. And, and then he like held a baseball and drew, drew over his fingers on the baseball. And like that baseball is now in the hall of fame, which is pretty cool. And I mean, I don't know how often that would happen, but that's what I cheer for. I don't, I don't actually care what happens on the diamond. I, I hope for one of them. I hope, I hope for Alec Manoa learning some, the secret of youth from Justin Verlander. That's what I, that's what I hope for. Yeah. So all-star games historically have had, you know, a bit of tension. And I'm not talking about, like, Charlie Hustle, Pete Rose, you know, running people right. over at home play. I'm talking about, ooh, that first All-Star game when it was Shaq in the East and Kobe in the West and how are they going to acknowledge each other in midcourt or it's Jordan's last year, but Vince Carter was the leading vote-getter. Should he give up his spot to Jordan? They've got this North Carolina brotherhood, but Jordan didn't really accept Vince Carter as an heir apparent the way he did Kobe, what's going to happen? I I feel like there's none of that now. The most awkward part of All-Star Games and the real tension was whether or not Kevin Durant was going to draft James Harden after James Harden wanted out of the Brooklyn Nets. That was an all-time moment, by the way, just like the reaction of Shaq and and uh, and Chuck and, and on on the TNT panel, like when I, I when they drafted him and he looked like he was really trying hard not to laugh, and then it cuts to LeBron and he's just straight up laughing at them, like he's just laughing. So uh, James Harden goes to uh, LeBron, LeBron James as the final selection uh, of the All Star yeah. draft. Shaq, is he? Can he? Is he? Is he? He hasn't played. Is he healthy? Who's that? James. He hasn't played. I don't, he's, I, he's like missed, what happens if he doesn't? Oh, he got traded. He's healthy now. He's missed the last three with a with a hand. <laughs> <laughs> See, and now we know why LeBron carries hey, a clipboard hey, with him to the uh, to the hey, draft. Hey, LeBron. Oh my God. Trust me right man. now. He's rubbing some ice hot on that thing. He's playing the next game. <laughs> no questions. <laughs> I can't. I can't KD, just oh next year God. bring a clipboard. All-time hilarious moment from those guys. But I think that's the point, is that we remember that moment. We don't remember the game. Right, right. Do you remember the game? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. Yeah. So I remember Steph Curry was the MVP of last year's NBA All-Star game only because there were so many photos going viral of him shooting shots and not waiting to see if they went (laughs) into the basket. He's just running uh, down Was the Fergie All-Star anthem, was that the the All-Star game? It was the All-Star game. I remember that because... The Warriors uh, made a remix to <laughs> right, that right. Fergie song, and we're playing it in, in, in the locker room and dancing to it. And the, the facial expressions of uh, Fergie told their own story. There's real rumors and momentum that the NHL All-Star Game will be in Toronto relatively soon. I, I got to tell you. I, I could not care less. And and quite frankly, <laughs> the, my only care is to circle those dates on my calendar to stay away from Scotiabank Arena. They're sending you down there. You know that's happening. They're going to send you down there for something, like some cool like vibe check of the Leafs locker room. You know what I mean? Like That's happening. They'll, they'll send us down there. It'll be <laughs> going deep, live on location. 
uh, as the radio row of the All-Star game happens. Because the All-Star game has become a convention. Our features group is going down to Florida this year uh, to get interviews with a bunch of players and uh, alumni and executives. There are There's league business that goes on in and around them, activations for league partners. I, I think All-Star games are about everything but the game. I, I do still care about the dunk competition. I will have the Rising Stars game, which I believe is still sponsored by Schick. I'll have it on in the background somewhere, but it won't be appointment viewing. It's just I'll be rooting for Nemhard and Matherin and Scotty, the Canadians or players from a Canadian team. But I love the fact that the NHL has really said there are no sacred cows with what we're doing, and you know we're going to have all these cool different competitions we're going to change them from year to year not going to get stuck on what we do where we're going to embrace some of the great female players of our game we talked to sarah nurse about that on this very podcast earlier this week and go through the feed and find that if you want to listen to it so i it's not all bad it's just the fact that the actual game or these mini games i suppose that we have in terms of the NHL or the touch football game that we're going to have in <laughs> football, which makes no sense. Like if, if you are a left tackle and you're all pro, why do you want to be a part of the Pro Bowl festivities? It's one thing when the Pro Bowl was in Hawaii every year and it was a vacation essentially for you and your family. And the, the only prerequisite is you got to, pretend to play football at the end of the week. Like, that kind of made sense. You go even further when you had the great competitions of quarterbacks with their accuracy or, you know, who's the fastest man sprinting competitions. Sadly, sometimes those go awry, and Patriots fans know that Robert Edwards blew out his knee playing beach touch football for some reason at some point. We wanted to play touch football on the beach, and he had a – storied CFL career after that with the Montreal Alouettes. But all of it is a bit of a reach for me. Bailey Zappi was snubbed, I guess, in favor of uh, Tyler Huntley, I, I suppose. <laughs> I think that's a legit claim. I like it. And that's, that is something that does still happen, that although we don't care about the games, people get mad when so-and-so is not starting or so-and-so doesn't make it or so-and-so is a scratch. Like, The amount of consternation about the fact that Joel Embiid is not starting for the East. (laughs) He leads the NBA in scoring. How dare you? I don't know. But Kevin Durant, Giannis, and Jason Tatum ahead of Joel Embiid. And I don't think Jason Tatum should be ahead of Joel Embiid. But, like, it just shows how ridiculous all of this is. Not, Not sure why we still vote via conference when they don't play four of their conferences anymore in the NBA. I don't know why we're so beholden to positions when they, we are at a point where it's, in many ways, positionless sport, positionless basketball for sure. And I also don't, as you just sit here and listen to me vent, I also don't like the fact that in some sports, we're giving out participation ribbons. Really, we need a representative for every team? Why? Like, who who cares? If there is a random 
Marlin in the game that may or may not get into the game. Do you think people in South Florida really, really care? I need to take a deep breath. Well, you know, it's funny. You, you talk about the uh, the idea of representation from every single team. And I, I tend to agree with you because I, was I really happy that maybe I think it was like five or six Blue Jays ended up going to the All-Star game last year? Sure, because it made for great content for us because you could talk to all these guys about what it means to go to the All-Star game. But like if you were going to go out there and seriously make the case for like Santiago Espinal to be an All-Star, I feel like very few people would. I mean, he was he was good last year. Was he an All-Star? Probably not. Same in the NHL, like it's happening this weekend. Uh, Austin Matthews is not going to the all-star game and he was shut down for what a couple of weeks probably see him after the all-star break but in his place they nominated Alexander Barkov who plays for the Panthers and look Alexander Barkov legitimately is one of those players that he's not having the greatest year this season but he's one of those guys that if he played in like if he played here in Toronto if he played in Boston if he played in New York for example he'd probably be one of the faces of the NHL he doesn't I know he doesn't speak uh, great English I think he's Finnish uh, but he, so he doesn't have the greatest English in terms of speaking to the media but still he is like a, he, he could be skills wise one of the faces of the NHL but he is going to the all-star game this year because the all-star game is in Florida. That is the only reason. Otherwise you could probably make the case that am I biased a little? Sure. But could you make the case that William Nylander should go to the all-star game over yes. Alexander Barkov? Yeah. I don't even, even people who times. hate the Leafs would make that argument because he's been phenomenal this season. So those kinds of things I, I, for me really drive home the point that the all-star game is not really about who the best players in any given year are. It's really about, like you say, marketing and activations and basically pandering to fans, right? Which is why for many of these things, I don't think the NHL does this, but for example, the, the NFL does this. And so does the NBA. They have vote votes in, in essentially in which you can vote in your favorite players and I mean, I, I, I support giving the fans a voice, but it, when it does result in like, I don't know, like Yao Ming making the NBA all-star team like years after he retires or when it, when it results in like uh, Joel Embiid missing out over other players. It's unfortunate, right? I'm here for K-pop bands making sure that Andrew Wiggins gets into the all-star game. I love that <laughs> that happened last year. But to your point about baseball, no disrespect to him. He's a great person. Was a good player. Beautiful family. Steve Delabar was a Major League Baseball All-Star. Like, being a Major League Baseball All-Star essentially means you had two good months in any given season. And your marketing team got really, really elaborate and creative. That, that's what it means. So I I'm, would be back in on All-Star games if you give me some tension, which is why I propose America versus the world. In every sport, I mean, it doesn't really work in football unless we're going to go NFL versus CFL, which I would be here for. America versus the world. Whether it's baseball, certainly works in place. Basketball at this point, quite honestly, I think I would choose the world. I mean, just look at the last couple MVPs. And well, they're both Nikola Jokic, so <laughs> but, but I know what you people, mean. Giannis, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, a future MVP in Luca. I'm 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 here for it. I, I think we'd have a couple Canadians like Shea Gildas Alexander pushing for a spot. I'm here for America versus the world in basketball. 
and most certainly America versus the world would work in hockey. I mean, it, 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 would, it would have to be probably a bit of a... It has to be like America versus Canada versus Europe, maybe. Yeah, like a three-way tournament, like a, a round robin. Could you get another distinction? America, Canada, Russia, rest of Europe? Maybe, actually, yeah. Either way, yeah. I, I'm I'm here for something a little bit more tribal than representing a division or a conference or the other all-stars that are part of the clutch agency and thus LeBron is just picking his friends, essentially. Here's the other thing that would only work in basketball, but I'd also be here for, and I proposed this when I was on the morning show with Cuthbert and Forfar. You can't wake up that early and listen to the podcast. I think this would save the dunk competition, and I think it would also save the all-star game the team you are on is the real team the person that pays you more than your nba team your brand and so throwing this out there for the dunk competition if every brand had one spot nike pick your person adidas pick your person under armor pick your person reebok if you're still kicking pick your person new balance new balance yeah Kawhi. yeah (laughs) no uh Load management for the dunk comp, Kawhi. <laughs> I think, one, it would change how those brands pick people, period, in terms of who they're doing brand deals with. But if it was about the brand potentially winning the dunk competition and selling the shoes that the player is wearing and you know, got these tight shots of the retro Zoom Kobe's that you're wearing for that dunk or the new technology in the shoe that made you have that bounce, I think for sure that would be of interest. And I feel in the same way that if we had a all-star game where it was, all right, it's Team Nike. We were the best Jumpman, Jumpman, Jumpman. And then they're facing off against the brand with three stripes, so on and so forth. I think that would be something where the players would care because the brands would care. I do. I do like that idea, though. I uh, the idea of brands because I do kind of wonder. I, I do kind of wonder how many people would be able to be picked from certain brands. You know what I mean? Like, for example, or like, would, would like brand free agents be able be allowed to be to to participate? Like, the only one I can really, the only two I could think of, I guess, are like Kyrie and like John Wall, I suppose, right? But well, John Wall won't be there. Yeah, so and, and, and yeah, he's not he, he's not going right. So. I, uh, but yeah, like New Balance, and I, the only reason New Balance actually came to my mind was that actually Shohei Otani recently signed with New Balance, which is pretty remarkable considering that if you had to think about the guy who is like the face of baseball, if was he like would he not sign with like Nike or Under Armour or or Adidas or whatever, but he signs with New Balance, which which kind of struck me a little. Um, I do real quick before we go, Donovan. I wanted to go back quickly to your idea of of having like having different tribes across the world be involved, whether it's, uh, you know, like I actually like the idea in the all-star game of in the NHL of having like a rest of Europe be one Russia, be its own thing, Canada, be its own thing and America, be its own thing. But, you know, I think, I feel like for geopolitical reasons, maybe you don't like these days, you don't want to do that (laughs) at the same time. 
But uh, you're right. You're you're comment on. Um, that might work for basketball is fascinating because I, I honestly don't remember the last time where the best players in the world were pretty much none of them were American. It's not, it's, it's not as though the, it's, it's not as though Jason Tatum like sucks or anything. Right. But he, he is probably the best American player. If you're thinking of like the MVP ladder right now, it's probably in some way, shape or form. Like you make the argument for Luca, you make the argument for Nikola Jokic is probably right now. I would say heads, heads in a way above everyone else, but it's like Jokic, it's Embiid, it's Giannis, it's Luca. And then after that, you could probably put Jason Tatum in there. And then like guys like Steph and LeBron and so on are always going to be like hanging around there somewhere. But it's funny to think that even though we think of basketball as this hugely international sport, I know a lot of NBA fans view it like it through the lens of America, but boy, like the international players have been great. Even, I think you can even make the argument, frankly, that based on how he's played, maybe even Shea Gilgis Alexander has been playing at a top 10 level this year. And certainly he's not American either. Right. So, I mean, I know he's like America adjacent when it comes to Canada. I know a lot of American fans also view, view it in that lens, but if you're strictly talking about place of birth, it's pretty remarkable that how few of the top 10 players are actually American versus when you, if you had this conversation, like, I don't know, like six, seven years ago, even it probably wasn't, it was probably a little more stark or a little more even in favor of the Americans. Of the top five scores in the NBA, only one of them is born in the United States, Jason Tatum. Joel Embiid, Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jason Tatum, Shea Gildas-Alexander. Jeez. Like, Shea was pushing to start in the West. There was a real conversation between Steph, Luka, Shea, and John Morant in terms of who the guards could be, you know, part of that is based on the fact that Steph Curry was injured for quite a while. But I think certainly uh, you can make an argument that the international team would be just as good, if not better than, you know, team United States. You certainly have to throw when when you broaden it. That's not even mentioning, you know, Jokic uh, because he's not in the top five in scoring. But when you broaden it, you look at someone like Pascal Siakam you're going to throw uh, into that conversation as well. So, yeah, I I think definitely it would be fascinating to see what those rosters look like, how many Maple Leafs would end up on that team. But I would would certainly, certainly care to watch more in that scenario than than I do now. Uh, I've never asked you this, but uh, I was thinking about when we we're talking about the international players, I was thinking about how many kids today will grow up with like a Luca or a Giannis as their favorite player. Like how many American kids and not just kids around the world, but kids who watch the basketball in North America will grow up with those two or Jokic or someone else as their favorite player, like the player that opened their eyes to basketball in the same way that for me, it was probably LeBron James. I never told you this, but I think the guy who was like the the player that really made me fall in love with basketball wasn't even LeBron. It was for me, it was Allen Iverson. Like I love, I gosh, I can't get enough of reading or watching about <laughs> Allen Iverson. It was when, especially when I was younger. Like for a lot of other people in my generation, I think it was probably either LeBron or Kobe. But for me, it was AI, and he was just he was so much fun to watch. Was there a guy like that for you? Like was it MJ or was it someone else? I've always been curious. So, I mean, it depends on the time. Everyone loved MJ, obviously, when we were young and got the Jays. You know, when the Raptors come along, you know, 
immediately it's Damon Stoudemire, right? Mighty Mouse as a s- small athlete, small kid, I suppose, at the time. You know, there's an era I loved the glove, Gary Payton. So generally guards. Now I'm like a kid watching Steph Curry, and I'm sure for kids coming up, he is a big part of it. But I do, I do think certainly it's different because the game is global, not just in its participants, but in its reach, the outreach. Kids can get league pass from any you know village in the world. And so, yeah, they could definitely find a player that comes from where they come from or looks like them, but they could also just fall in love with a player based off of you know their style of play, the way they play. Uh, so I, I do think that... You know, there's going to be many kids in North America that look up to Joel Embiid, and I think there's going to be many kids in Africa who, you know, look up to Jason Tatum because they, you know, like, you know, his Euro step in the lane with his long legs. It's funny, though, because specifically when you look at the import of players and infusion of international players, I think for a long time we thought, oh, yeah. Europeans are finesse and shooting threes. And so, you know, you're going to get the Pages Stojakovic's and the Hito Turkulus of the, the world. But when you look at the types of players that are coming, it's a player who we traditionally thought was American, the back to the basket center, the big man. Damanis Sabonis, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Rudy Gobert, Steven Adams, Nikola Vucevic, Nikola Jokic, uh, Ivak Zubac. DeAndre Aiden is, uh, you know, from the West Indies. Obviously, Joel Embiid, Jonas Valanciunas, Yusuf Nurkic, Jakob Pertl. So many of the great um, big players in the game, Christoph Przingis, and that's where I draw the line at great, because I don't think he's great, are actually international players. So uh, it's fascinating to see, you know, the fours like Pascal, although he can do a bit of everything. Um, in the fives, uh, that supply is coming from overseas. We're not getting, you know, the Shacks and the David Robinsons and the Patrick Ewings, although he was born in Jamaica, um, like like we used to. I guess you can add Victor Wembanyama to that list starting uh, next year, probably. Certainly can. Certainly can. Uh, thank you for adding us to your list of things to listen to. There are so many great podcast options out there. The fact that you spent any of your disposable time listening to us does not go unnoticed. Appreciate it. Talk to you again soon.